Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it's the morning of Thursday, the 17th of June in Seoul, and also in New Zealand, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's guest, Professor Van Jackson, to talk about the Biden administration's policy on North Korea and a bunch of other things. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this podcast with everyone you know and three people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today, Dr. Van Jackson, is a senior lecturer in international relations at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand and also holds two policy research appointments as the Defense and Strategy Fellow with the Center for Strategic Studies and as a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. Van's research broadly concerns strategic thought, U.S. foreign policy, and Asia-Pacific security. Van, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. This is my favorite North Korea podcast. Oh, that's great to hear. Are there others? <laughs> nope, just this one. <laughs> but I still love it. Excellent. Uh, and we're, we're going to be doing this as a, a podcast crossover, right? Because mm -hmm. you've got your own podcast. I've got some questions about that later on. Uh, there's so yeah. much to talk about. Let's get straight into it. Uh, you're a prolific author. You've written dozens of journal articles, book chapters, and policy reports, as well as two books. Uh, first one, Rival Reputations, Coercion and Credibility in U.S.-North Korea Relations, which was published in February 2016 by Cambridge University Press. I'm guessing that was a, uh, a version of your PhD thesis. Would that be right? Yeah, revised dissertation. Um, right. Like it was, it was made more sort of commercially accessible, thinned down the theory chapter, all that stuff. And the second book, On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War, published in November 2018, also by Cambridge University Press. So congratulations on having two books published by uh, one of the more prestigious names in the world of publishing. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your process of writing On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War. You blogged about that experience uh, of writing an academic 80,000 words virtually in real time on the website waronthe-rocks.com. How was that experience? It was uh, harrowing. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I, can't, I read this, um, this book that was a diary by John Steinbeck when he was writing The Grapes of Wrath. Ah. He, he kept like self-accountability in a journal where he would record how many words he wrote that day what was going on in his life, if his neighbors were being too loud, all that stuff, his hangups, where he was getting stuck. And it helped him write the freaking Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. So I was like, well, if it's good enough for him to do that, then maybe I should try that. So uh, Cambridge, my editor from my first book, had approached me right when Trump had first done the whole fire and fury sort of hyperbole. Mm. And she was basically like, hey, what would you think about making sense of this newly emergent nuclear crisis for a mass audience, but under the Cambridge banner? Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, in principle, that's amazing. And uh, I was doing a bunch of op-eds and stuff at the time that were ringing alarm bells and warning in various ways whenever I could in the media about the risks of what Trump was doing. But the, the format was always condensed, truncated, yeah. 800 words here, 30 second soundbite here, 
uh, and a, like a, a larger canvas was necessary. And so a book like really suited that purpose well, like re bringing back a historical context to all of that urgency of 2017. The catch was she wanted it in like six months. Yeah. Which is the, the you know, the biggest mountain I've ever had to climb basically. Yeah. And so the, the uh, blog, the daily blog of progress called Nuclear Darlings was sort of making sure that I put my ass in the seat every day, no matter right. what was going on and put words on paper. And, and then eventually it just came out. And clearly that's a, a technique that worked for you. I mean, you did get the 80,000 words out in six months. Yeah. Of course, Cambridge being Cambridge, it took another six months to actually print and publish the book and get it out there <laughs> yes. on the shelves, right? <laughs> yeah. And that was record speed for them. Good God. How, how that's still possible uh, in, you know, the 20, 2020s. Uh, well, I mean, this was a couple of years ago, so it wasn't quite 2020s. But anyway, in the 21st century, I, I'm still not sure why it takes so darn long to get a book out there once it's been written. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, now, would you do the experience again of, of churning out a whole book in six months? And would you, uh, now that you've you've tried and found this method of, of blogging for personal accountability to be successful, would you do that again? Uh, I think yes and yes, even though it was torturous. <laughs> It, it definitely took a toll on like personal life. It displaced other research priorities. Mm. It made it, it just it rewired everything because it was such a concentrated effort. But to get a like a, a high prestige book out of a six month process, you know, sometimes it can take people ten years to get a book like that. Yeah, it's very enticing. It's very seductive, even though it's very painful. So <laughs> like, if I can do that again, I'm very attracted to the challenge. But recognizing that, I don't know, it would probably be deleterious to my life. Well, that's right. And, and you're a dad now. Were you a dad then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And my son did not help the writing process at all. <laughs> I can he's, imagine. Just, he's, he's just a kid. Yeah. Uh, now, what's, what was the basic thesis of your book? Let our listeners know, those who haven't read it yet. Uh, for On the Brink, the idea was that we were on three paths to nuclear war at the same time. And very early in the crisis, we had sort of given up control over how and the extent to which we proceeded down these paths. So there were multiple ways in which, not just one way, war could have happened with North Korea. Mm. And based on how US policy was being conducted at the time and the flying of nuclear bombers and aircraft carriers and injecting special forces onto the peninsula and uh, floating rumors about non-combatant evacuation operations in South Korea, and plus all of the sort of gratuitous insults that Trump was layering on top of the hyperbolic threats of nuclear war, which were being reciprocated, both the insults and the threats by Kim Jong-un. All of that stew was had brought us closer to nuclear war than any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's the core contention of the book. And the way I substantiate that is by not just going through the play-by-play -play chronology of what happened, but anchoring it in these three sort of model paths to war. Mm. And the fact that we were on more than one path to war at the same time was what justified this claim because we hadn't been previously. And now, uh, three years after you last struck a key on the keyboard and sent the manuscript to Cambridge University Press, looking back on the, uh, the thesis and the conclusions that you drew, do you still feel that your analysis was right? Yes, I feel uh, super vindicated, but I feel, I mean, that's depressing. Like, 
it's the kind of thing you would hope to be wrong about in a way. Yeah. Uh, like as I was finishing that final chapter and putting a bow on it, we were in the era of the summits, right? Yeah. So um, literally the, the first Trump Kim summit in June of 2018 was the, that week that it was happening was when I was doing the very, very final edits. So the, the Moon Kim summit had happened, right? The like back channel diplomacy with the national security advisor had happened. Pompeo had gone to Pyongyang. All of that stuff was going on and the, the sort of media and the pundit landscape was just overjoyed at the prospect that like Trump's idiocy might actually accidentally explode into peace in our time. Mm. And it was very hard to be the, basically the contrarian, particularly because of my own politics, right? But I could see because of the historical context, because the structure of the situation hadn't changed and because of both how Kim Jong-un sort of resolved the nuclear crisis and navigated it and how he more than likely saw Trump and what Trump's motivations were, all of that together suggested that the summit was going to be like all flash, all smoke, no fire. Mm -mm. That is precisely what it ended up being. And it's, it, it was, be, it could not be otherwise, even if Trump wanted to like exercise his whims or his caprice in like a different way, Kim Jong-un wasn't going to go along unless, uh, you know, there was going to be more concessions from the United States than were forthcoming, unless there was going to be a lack of um, concessions asked from Kim Jong-un, like he, he's not going to sacrifice his nuclear deterrent, man. So knowing those things and warning about how this was all a big Trump show, basically, was not a popular talking point at the time. And it put me on the wrong side of a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of my political class, but it was true. And so I had to write the book in that way, uh, mm -hmm. finishing it off post-crisis and it, it held up. Going back to your earlier point that uh, 2017 was the worst nuclear confrontation since the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have had other guests on this podcast. You might have heard them before, people like uh, Chris Green, Dan Pinkston, and Steve Tharp, amongst others, who even now believe that 2017 wasn't particularly dangerous at all. Sure, there was lots of sound and fury, uh, but it wasn't any more dangerous than other years. And uh, to extend that, in fact, back in May 2017, uh, this is well before you started writing your book, as the rhetoric was heating up and even before the fire and fury speech by President Trump, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, who's been on the show a few times, published a piece in the Korea Times called Knowing When to Flinch. You can still find it online. And in this piece, he described a lesson that he'd been taught about North Korean negotiating tactics back in the 1990s that formed an eight-step repeating loop process, starting from uh, creating the appearance of tension and then going all the way through uh, seven other steps that eventually take you back to step one again. And when I asked him last week in preparation for this interview, how he now looks back at 2017, he simply pointed to that eight step loop and said, yeah, I was right. <laughs> well, so was I. What does that mean? Like, uh, I love Chris Green. I love Dan Pinkston, right? They're wrong about this. Uh, there's no, they can make that assertion if they want. Um, as long as war doesn't actually break out, people will always be, you know, uh, copacetic. Like people, people have a strong, especially within South Korea, like if you're, I mean, you were there at the time, I'm sure. sure. South Korean people were not particularly freaked out. It was the government that was freaked out. 
right? But did you see any sign that either the Japanese or the South Korean governments were going to uh, go along with uh, U.S. plans to launch a preemptive strike on North Korea? Japan, yes, actually. South Korea, I don't think so. But in South Korea, what, you know, when Moon Jae-in came to office in those early months of the crisis, the way, and I capture this in the book too, like the way he was basically sidelined as the U.S. did what it did, he was no more read into what the United States was going to do next than literally anybody else, than CNN, you know? And it was to his frustration and it was to his government's frustration. And he would publicly say there could never be war in Korea. But that's a feckless protestation, man. Like, that's not credible. He's not the one with his finger on the trigger to decide that. It was Trump, right? It was the military. And like, and the point of the three paths to war is that like war can happen not like World War I was something that happened in a kind of inadvertent way. You know, you don't have to have a maniacal person deciding that we must launch a preventive war. That can happen. The buildup for that was happen, happening, right? That was Iraq 2003. But that's not the way all wars happen, right? Wars can happen even though nobody wants them to happen. And so that's what we have to be sensitive to. Do you see any signs that uh, short of a uh, an airburst test of a nuclear device over the Pacific by North Korea that it actually would have come to uh, to nuclear blows? Uh, short of that, I don't know, but that was on the table to be considered. Um, and the one of the difficulties that I experienced or the dissonances in this writing process was that I was interviewing people in government, people I had served with, friends of mine, right? People at Pacific Command, also in DC at the National Security Council. And they were ringing alarm bells internally, off the record. Occasionally, they would leak something for non-attribution to the press. But it was unique. They had all worked on North Korea stuff in previous years. They knew the battle rhythm. They knew the habits, the sort of like manufacturing of crisis process, right? This was different. And it was different not on Kim Jong-un's side. It was different on the U.S. side. It was different in the sense that the bloody nose threats that started percolating at the end of 2017 or uh, early 2018, that had been cooking for months. And there were advocates for that internally within the system. And if Jim Mattis, and this is something that like normal sort of Korea watchers who aren't connected to Washington would not necessarily know, right? And, but it's what you're hearing socially from people. And what, what I got through interviews was that had the Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis been on board with a preventive strike or a bloody nose, a conventional strike, right? Mm -hmm. Then it would have 100% happened. It only, the only reason it didn't materialize was because he was the firebreak. Was there any, do you know whether uh, DEFCON was raised here in uh, South Korea by the, uh, what are they called, uh, uh, Combined Forces Command? Uh, I can't remember. There was an alert level change late in the crisis. I remember that. Um, and then the urgent thing that Bob Woodward's book sort of captured, but mine captured in a different way, was this um, decision to uh, declare a non-combatant evacuation operation, which is the most imminent indicator of war from North Korea's perspective, from the KPA's perspective. And that was something Trump had wanted to do, he had decided to do before he got it walked back. But even separate from knowing that internal deliberation, it leaked to the press, like Jung Ilbo or somebody 
had actually um, published that there was a deputy assistant secretary of defense for plans, Beth Cordray, who had gone to Korea. That kind of person never goes to Korea and they're responsible for the contingency plans for war planning and for planning non-combatant evacuation operations. And it was at the same time that there were reports that the CIA was orchestrating this. And this was like public, you know, if you're North Korea, you're seeing the news media that says this stuff, but you mm. don't know what's true. And that's where like, there's so much sort of misperceived urgency, right? That's risk. Is there anything that you would change or update in a, a new, new edition of your book? That's a good question. Um, I got some comments from um, like Scott Sagan, some political scientists who want a deep dive sort of crisis chronology mm. that I did for that book, but like part three or whatever, or the, you know, do the, do for the summit era, what you did for the crisis. Right. So it's like the goal instead of uh, war and denuclearization is sort of peace and reconciliation, yeah. but the, the tempo and everything sort of being the same thing. Now, uh, let's talk about your podcast. You're also a host of a podcast like myself called Undiplomatic, uh, which our listeners yeah, can yes. find at undiplomaticpodcast or one word.com. Uh, it comes out somewhat irregularly, but looking at the, uh, the schedule there, I'd say on average two or three times a month. Would that be about right? Yeah, well, it was weekly, but then uh, this, this past term, since I, I uh, teach at university as my yes. day job, the schedule got a little bit intense. So I had to dial back the frequency. So now it's like every other week. Okay. And what are the main topics that your podcast deals with? Man, everything. Uh -huh. um, it, it's basically an expression of me, but contextualized talking to a bunch of uh, Generation Z, former university students of mine. And so it's keeping the conversation young. It's focused on foreign policy, but it's got a strongly progressive um, flavor mm -hmm. and also like I come from I don't even know how you would phrase this the hood like lower lower middle class background mm -hmm. so you know a lot of my cultural references come from like you know hip-hop and movies and that kind of thing basically I speak in like the common vernacular so are you van from the block van from the block <laughs> you said it okay so I just talk like a normal human being like you're not listening to NPR you're listening to somebody dropping f-bombs you know yeah, I, I do have to warn our listeners that you will hear some swears uh, or cussing <laughs> as they say in the United States on that uh, podcast so if you're not ready oh, yeah. for uh, some hard language then uh, you know uh, just be careful that's right uh, but I try despite that's all sort of like I don't know what the right phrase is, a wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever. It's a way of ac making accessible discussions ab about applied IR theory to world politics. There you go. So, so this is, I think that, could you make that your strapline? The Undiplomatic Podcast, The Gateway Drug to IR. There we go. <laughs> I like that. Uh, how often does North Korean, uh, sorry, North Korea or Korean Peninsula issues get discussed on the podcast? Uh, almost every episode, um, never, never in a way where it, it dominates the entire episode because mm -hmm. it's kind of like a variety show format. Right. Um, so we have four or five different segments that make up an episode that lasts maybe like an hour. And so within one of those segments, North Korea or South Korea definitely comes up almost mm -hmm. every episode. Now, I've listened to and enjoyed your two most recent episodes. And indeed, you, it is like a variety show. That's a good description. You bring in a lot of things from uh, Twitter to questions from the audience to a deep dive into an academic article uh, and hip hop. 
um, which is a little bit over my head. And we also hear our uh, post-recording producer genius Gabby on your show a little bit. So uh, how did this, the style of your show evolve from the first episode? Yeah, we, it took a little bit of time to find our footing, I guess, which is normal with podcasts. In the beginning, I was trying to speak to kind of like national security technocrats who wanted to learn what the ecosystem was of think tanks and NGOs and new media. And like, if you want to do something beyond just working in the Foreign Service or at the Pentagon, um, there's all kinds of shibboleths and you don't know what opportunities there are, or what kind of norms, you know, constrain behavior and how the system really works. And so like, I wanted to talk about all that stuff mm. in mixed in with sort of current events and reacting to the day's headlines. Um, and so it's, it was very much for like millennials, Gen Z, um, but it's open to everybody. And then it sort of became more political because 2020 was like just this explosion where politics and sort of technocratic analysis, where they used to be firewalled, they were in intimately linked, intermingled mm. from 2020 onward. So I sort of let my politics be more transparent. In the beginning, I tried to hide it a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so it is what it is, you know, it's just basically a reflection of me, I guess, and the, and the pod contributors. Now, your bio informs me that before becoming a scholar, you were a practitioner of U.S. foreign and defense policy, serving in several positions in the office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense from 2009 to 2014, as well as the U.S. Air Force from 2000 to 2006. Uh, mm -hmm. And you also have two policy research appointments now, which I mentioned earlier. Are you that rare breed of person that has a foot in both camps of academia and policy? Yeah, and it's crazy. My, my bio has not been updated I have affiliations at uh, four or I think five different think tanks right now. Oh gosh. And I'm doing, you know, you have to like do things to justify those. So I'm doing work in support of those, which are mm -hmm. all very policy sort of focused. And then the podcast is like the public facing thing. I do the odd op-ed here and there. Uh, and then I have the academic research track where the standard of progress and the standard of success mm. is measured totally differently. It's measured mm. in terms of books and journal articles, and they don't care about the rest of the stuff. So like, I'm, I'm basically I'm spread thin. I'm like trying to check all those boxes. Do you, uh, do you, uh, do you need to sleep ever? I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like I party or anything though. So right. New Zealand's a pretty quiet place. Now, are you still interested in influencing and helping to shape U.S. policy on North Korea? Yeah, for sure. I was not consulted on the uh, North Korea policy review, but I think that speaks to the nature of the policy review more than anything. And uh, tough question here, but how possible is it to be involved in policy shaping while you're in New Zealand? Even in this digital age, it still feels a little bit far from the, uh, the Washington Circle Center. Yes, and that's the uh, attraction and the peril or the, the downside, I guess. Ah. Um, for somebody like me, I, when I moved here, I expected that I was just going to disconnect and right. basically come out like a hermit academic. And then the nuclear crisis happened while mm. I was here. And it, that sort of proved that location was not so relevant. Like I, I had sort of become a prominent commentator on Korea during that period. Uh, even though this is a strange location to be a, you know, Korea commentator. Yeah, it, it's it's not a common one. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, it's like the thing most people, the thing people know about me more than anything is that I'm in New Zealand. And then like <laughs> other things. 
Um, but yeah, like during the, so the crisis happened, the crisis ended and that battle rhythm slowed down and I went back to just, you know, I, I had dialed up the punditry and then I dialed it back down so I could focus on academic stuff and writing books. And then um, the 2020 presidential campaign happened. I ended up working on um, four different presidential campaigns mm. as an unpaid advisor. Gosh. So yeah, I was adamant about beating Trump, obviously. And so- right. Oh, you mean, you mean four campaigns for four different candidates uh, at the same time in, in the 2020 campaign? Not at the same time. Okay. They don't let, nobody lets you do that. Ah, uh, they don't, not even if you're unpaid. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's pretty like, especially once the pandemic hit, location didn't matter, but right. so much of the campaign work was distributed that, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, now let's talk about a recent article that you had published in World Politics Review. It's called Biden's Dangerous Risk-Averse Inaction on North Korea, uh, which I read in preparation for this. Now, the title itself is interesting. One doesn't usually associate risk-averseness with dangerous. How do you knit those two concepts together? Uh, well, I didn't choose the title. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I think you can, I think that's not unfaithful to the piece itself. My concern is, I really hit at the bottom of the piece, but you know, coming into 2021 and be like bouncing around on different um, Democratic campaigns, I saw how the Democratic Party, the full, I got the full range of how Democrats thought about North Korea policy. And Biden's North Korea policy is the most conservative among all of the like leading candidates. Mm. And everybody who put forward statements on North Korea had, uh, you know, receipts explaining their rationale, doing their whole, like it was not off the cuff remarks, like they had formulated a foreign policy platform and then a North Korea fit within that. Yeah. And they had come out much more, you would call it progressive, I guess, but it's just like a rejection of the status quo because the status quo has been the worst failure that you can imagine short of war actually happening. Like you couldn't design a worse set of outcomes without war. And Biden's was the most uh, close to the status quo of all of these different things. And the frustration or the, the real trouble with that is that we have like a once in a generation alignment with the Democratic Party in South Korea. Mm. At this point, not just the, with the Blue House, but with the National Assembly too. And they are, of course, all about the peace and reconciliation stuff with North Korea. They don't like to give up on the rhetoric of denuclearization, but they're all about pursuing arms control. They're all about pursuing sanctions relief. They're all about declaring an end to the Korean War. Hmm. That has been the driving force of Moon Jae-in's foreign policy. And um, Biden is not on board with any of that. And he wasn't throughout the campaign, and he's not now. You know, um, And so this... One of the big things holding back U.S.-North Korea policy for a long time was the argument that South Korea will feel like we're abandoning them, we're sacrificing mm. them. If we make compromises with North Korea, we're going to make them more vulnerable. That's mm -hmm. not how South Korea views it now, right? And so this is a window, and yeah. we don't know how much longer Moon Jae-in is going to be in there, or how much longer progressives will be controlling South Korean politics. 
Yeah, and indeed, you're very critical of the uh, the Biden administration, saying that uh, Biden is using an outdated script and blowing a unique opportunity. Quite strong. But my understanding is that North Korea is doing all it can to avoid picking up the phone or answering an email. What exactly would you suggest the U.S. do to open up a comms channel with Pyongyang? So I think that's the wrong thing to try and do. Like we already tried to do that, right? The U.S. reached out through the New York Channel. Yeah. North Korea, like you said. You know, didn't pick up the phone basically. And the the reason, the problem with that, or the reason why, like, I'm strongly pro engagement, but then I think that is dumb basically, is because I'm like looking at this from North Korea's perspective, from Kim, where Kim Jong Un sits, right? Mm-hmm. He navigated the nuclear crisis successfully. He thinks he's a good gambler, right? He like faced down the devil with Trump and basically won. He came out smelling like roses from the year of summits, although he didn't get sanctions relief, right? Mm. That was sort of the the best end game possible. Uh, And he didn't get that, which is sort of why we're in this holding pattern impasse. But he was also basically led to believe by Trump that he might be able to get something for nothing or get something for very little. Mm -hmm. And it never materialized. And so if you're sitting where he's sitting, he wants sanctions relief, but he can't give up his nuclear weapons. So is there a win set or a possibility for like win-win within those constraints, you know? And having communications with Biden's team, recognizing that Biden is the most conservative on North Korea policy out of everybody who, who was up for the presidency, there's nothing there. There's, there's no prospect of achieving anything. Like, if you're not going to engage with North Korea in a way that suggests you're going to try and transform the larger relationship from which sanctions relief would trickle down or come, then there's no point, you know? Then it's all about North Korea playing its real politique. They're the uber realists, right? Playing that game, trying to extract concessions as much as they can while giving up as little as possible. And that's the nature of the game, you know? So even if North Korea had picked up the phone, it would have just been kabuki theater anyway. But what's the point? What are they, if, if Biden's not showing any hint of willing to uh, put constraints on nuclear bomber deployments or not willing to entertain sanctions relief, not willing to talk about an end to the Korean war, these things in isolation matter less than if you do them all together. And you only do them all together if you're trying to actually transform the relationship. But that's not in the discourse, that's not in the imagination. So you've done a bit of uh, what negative jurisprudence there, but if I can uh, turn that on its head and try to read out what you're uh, suggesting Biden should do is that he should uh, come out and publicly signal that he's willing to uh, change the fundamental relationship between the United States and North Korea. Is that what you're advocating? Yes, to treat North Korea policy as a failed albatross that we have to fix by fixing the relationship. And then within that paradigm, pursuing a lot of things that point in the same direction, ultimately changing the valence of things so that you can get to reciprocity, tit for tat, negotiations that actually have good faith. Now, to an uneducated observer, it, like myself, it may seem as if every possible permutation and combination of 
carrots and sticks, diplomacy and deterrence, patience and pressure has been used by the US over the decades. What you're advocating sounds to me a little bit like what uh, President Bill Clinton tried to do in the last year or two of his presidency. What would you argue hasn't been tried that actually should be? I mean, nothing has really been tried. Like, we never, we never manipulated sanctions in a positive way. How do you do that? You offer unilateral sanctions relief, right? This is one of the things that uh, is very frustrating knowing the history and being in the Obama administration and watching this stuff happen inside and outside. When, we, when Obama piled up those strategic patience sanctions in his final years in office, he was, and I document this in the book too, he was very explicit that, and the, the officials that I interviewed, very explicit that the point was to provide the next president leverage, right? They weren't trying to lock in the next president, but if you pile on extra sanctions, mm -hmm. then you're giving the next president something to peel away to incentivize bargaining. You're, you're strengthening their hand, but you can't actually exploit that leverage if you don't take away the sanctions. And what happened was when Trump came in, nobody was expecting that, but everybody started acting like those sanctions that were put on between 2013 and 2016, that it was the forever sanctions. Like this is supposed to always be there until mm. the regime dies or until they give up their nukes. And that was not the point at all. It was tactical and they were supposed to be temporary. And it doesn't mean you peel back all sanctions, right? There are human rights sanctions and stuff that need to stay. Um, and that frankly, the president couldn't remove, but those, those, la those latter year sanctions, which were the ones in particular that North Korea was um, most upset about going into the Hanoi summit, right? That's what they were seeking a relief from. Th those things are, they need to be um, alleviated. Like they need to be deflated, removed. And if North, like I have no great trust for North Korea, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a North Korea watcher. I understand the history. I've written books about the history, right? I, the reason why I can make this wager and say that this is what we need to do is because I know if it fails and there's probably like a 60% chance of failure, if, if like Biden just did what I wanted, we wouldn't be that much worse off. Like we would have bought time, we would have reduced crisis pressures and we would have ruled out things for the future that we could do. Like, you know, we, we would take things off the table, right? And so like, that's not, there's no great downside. Like none of this stuff jeopardizes deterrence. And so if you think, if you're one of these people, which is me, that thinks deterrence works, then you shouldn't be in great fear that, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un will pocket sanctions relief and then ultimately not give up any nukes. Maybe that's, that's just a diplomatic risk. What, so what, if that happens, like what, what great cost have you paid, mm. you know? Now, your paper introduced me to the idea of uh, Goliath's curse. I'm not an IR specialist, so it was a new idea, a new concept to me. Uh, mm. And I'm not sure how many of our listeners will know it. Can you uh, briefly walk us through what Goliath's curse is? Yeah, it's a convoluted political science concept, but the essence of it, it has applications to North Korea, but it was not designed with North Korea in mind. It, it basically argues uh, logically in like a, a game theoretic sense that there's when you have a, a dramatic imbalance of power between two adversaries, mm -hmm. the larger power will never be able to offer inducements or concessions sufficient to make the other, the weaker side, give 
give the security, give up its own deterrent basically because of how much is at stake for the smaller power. Like the, the bargaining thing that's happening between the US and North Korea is existential for North Korea. Mm. There's nothing that the United States can offer North Korea to offset the costs and the risks involved of giving up something so existential. If you accept that, then, then the denuclearization is off the table. Right. So that's why you call it in your paper, a denuclearization, well-intentioned, but practically impossible. Right. Which the history clearly bears out, you know. And so you would argue, if I'm not mistaken, for arms control of North Korea, not denuclearization. Yes. Um, I think when, and I wrote about this in a report a couple of years ago, but if you're sitting from North Korea's perspective and the U.S. wants, the great power wants to negotiate with you, your unilateral disarmament, right? The great power is not going to disarm. They want you to disarm. So if, if that's what the negotiations are supposed to be about, mm. you may be under all sorts of pressures to actually go to the table. You may have all kinds of potential reasons for entertaining negotiations, but it would be absolutely insane to think that you're actually going to do the unilateral disarmament, you know? Mm. And so you're going to enter into negotiations for your unilateral disarmament in bad faith. And that's fundamentally problematic because the U.S. negotiators are going in good faith, but they're going with the expectation of unilateral disarmament by the smaller power. So that's like a huge, that poisons the well of the diplomacy up right up front. Um, and so if you put the unilateral disarmament sort of goal off the table, or you just like, you know, put it outside the frame, and then try to proceed, you're at least, it doesn't mean you're going to like, magically change everything, but you're preventing that you're, you're preventing the preemptive foreclosure that you were doing to yourself before. But uh, yeah, what we what we often hear uh, in debates about whether you know the U.S. should pursue denuclearization by North Korea or arms control is that arms control is an idea that would never get past the U.S. Congress. It would never be accepted. That the Republicans would understandably attack uh, President Biden and his whole administration as being uh, soft on North Korea. Isn't it? I mean, just sort of extending that idea a little bit, uh, is, is it even possible for a Democratic White House to change the game in this way? And also, uh, what, another thing that you propose in your paper is to engage North Korean hardliners in parallel with the diplomats. Can a Democratic administration do that? Isn't this like Nixon's visit to Beijing, something that only a Republican president could do or maybe just do better? Uh, I mean, Republicans are fascist conspiracy theorists now. And I, I'm trying to say that as nonpartisanly as possible. But like, this is not a serious discussion anymore. Democrats have become national security hawks, like much to my chagrin, frankly. Um, and Republicans are completely unserious, right? The, the, this paradigm- I think that might come off way. as a little bit partisan to some of our Maybe, listeners. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a little, you get a flavor for the podcast, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't think that that paradigm fits circumstances anymore. I think what's true, the first point you made, um, the Biden administration has basically no treaty making ability, right? That's on Congress. Um, and so you're not gonna get any sort of legally 
validated treaty with North Korea. Uh, that doesn't seem realistic. But um, there's all kinds of stuff that can happen within that, right? That's like the utmost pie in the sky thing. You can have sanctions relief without treaty. You can have some sanctions reliefs without, without congressional approval. It depends on what it is. Uh, you can do a lot with the authorities and the discretion of the executive branch, the way they are set up now. Um, so there's room to play. There's room to negotiate. Uh, so like arms control doesn't have to look like, you know, strategic arms limitation talks and, um, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev and that mm. kind of thing. Uh, going back to the idea of sanctions relief or some symbolic uh, early sanctions relief, what kind would, of sanctions would you like to see lifted first? Uh, so, you know, what's funny is um, the sanction, so most sanctions that came after 2016, mm -hmm. so basically the Trump era, the crisis era sanctions are the ones that I think need to be alleviated in part because that's what North Korea thinks it's owed. Mm. And it came in a moment of basically like mass hysteria in the Washington establishment anyway. But there's also sanctions that are not economic in nature, as in like Treasury Department regulations that constrain interactions with North Korea. And so since the crisis, it's been very difficult for non-government officials to have sort of track two and track three interactions with North Korea. Ah, because they're officially constrained by, by some That's sort of right. regulation. You have to get, I forget the office's name, but you have to get a license from Treasury uh, in order to actually engage in track two. So some places like NCNK, they had a license already. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they could engage in track two if the North Koreans were open to it. But they have, they've written quite a bit about how like, uh, it's if it's it's been impossible to get a new license for engagement, like if you weren't already interacting with North Korea. And so that's a huge limitation, right? And that doesn't, it's not that like track two engagement is going to open up magical solutions, but like it doesn't help to cut it off, you know, mm. if anything that just sends the wrong signal. So it's not about like magical solutions with any of this. It's just about like positioning yourself marginally better. Do you think there's any uh, likelihood that former President Trump would uh, fly to uh, North Korea and do some track two diplomacy by himself? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I don't see it. Um, one, of, one of the areas where I disagree with a lot of Korea watchers in the 2018 year of summits, 2019, mm -hmm. was that it was very evident to me Trump was using the summits as a distraction. Maybe he actually believed he could, you know, get a, a peace declaration because it wouldn't technically cost anything to him. Mm. Um, but I, he was in the middle when he declared this, like, I'm going to do a summit with Kim Jong-un out of the blue mm -hmm. the first time. It was in a context where all of the headlines in the major newspapers were about his sex scandal with porn star Stormy Daniels and payoffs via um, Michael, what's his name, his, his former lawyer. Avenatti. Yeah. And it's like, that's, it, it was, he was being plagued by the media and he's obsessed with the media. It was a terrible set of news stories that was running and he changed the script. He changed the story overnight by mm. using the summits. Right. And he even told press, he's like, I hope you give me credit for this. You know, right. now, given that, uh, and your sort of you know, low opinion of, uh, what happened at the 2018 summit in Singapore generally, 
Um, do you, what's your feeling about the Biden administration saying that it wants to build on uh, previous agreements, including the, uh, the 2018 Singapore agreement and also agreements between presidents, uh, uh, President Moon and Chairman Kim? Do you get any hope from that? Yeah, I guess so. Um, it's, it's not a bad thing. The thing is, it's, it's kind of necessary at this point, right? Mm. Like you don't want to reject something that North Korea had just agreed to a couple of years ago. Like that would not be a, a good foundation to try and entertain diplomacy. So starting with an acceptance of the Singapore Declaration, assuming North Korea is on board, that's mm -hmm. fine. It doesn't signal great progress uh, in part because the Singapore Declaration itself was like a watered down version of previous agreements North Korea had made. Mm. It was kind of a hollow non-committal thing, you know? And so the, not, there's not much gained by using the Singapore Declaration as a starting point for diplomacy, but it is like a small ray of light. It's a small, you know, thing of hope to like pin your pin yourself to. Yeah, initially, I think the only area that we actually saw some practical results on was in the return of uh, U.S. servicemen, uh, remains of U.S. servicemen uh, who had been killed in the Korean War. As a former military man yourself, did you uh, think that was a good way to start? It's a good thing. It's a, it's always a good thing, right? It's and in theory, it's not even a political thing. Mm. Although both sides tend to view this whole um, prisoners of war, missing in action, return um, that that process is viewed as a political signal. Like, mm. does in the Obama administration, we were able to recover some remains as well, mm. uh, and Obama was you know, arch enemy of North Korea, basically. Right. Um, and so its significance was never great, but its value, like its humanitarian value was strong mm. and it was a political signal in the tactical back and forth of negotiations. Now, in your paper, you describe Pyongyang's strategic culture as pressure for pressure. C can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, basically, so this, this was one of the insights that came out of my first book. Um, I, was, I reviewed all the crises that we had had with North Korea going back to the 60s. And what I found was that every time um, we were in a crisis, it was generated from a process, a dynamic mm -hmm. of like, we sometimes it was triggered, the catalyst was often that North Korea did some bad stuff. And then we, we reacted with great surprise and our reaction brought on the crisis. Like we didn't think they were going to you know, kill people or try guerrilla warfare or whatever, and then they did, or shoot mm -hmm. down an EC-121, and then they did. And it was that, like, that the violence and the surprise of it, suddenly the stakes were so high, timelines were short, time horizons were short, and we had to make decisions. War was always on the table as a possibility. Um, and then that's where we get these crises happening it, repeatedly, 66, 67, 68, 69, mm. 76, 93, 94, 2002, sort of. 2010, right? Um, and in each of these cases, what I saw was North Korea responding um, to US pressure, whether it came in the form of sanctions or threats of war um, or coercive signaling, right? Deployments of ships and that kind of thing. They always responded with pressure and kind, with defiance and sometimes with escalation. And so they're habituated, the national security establishment, so to speak, it's like a very broad, I mean, in North Korea, it's like everything, I guess, but mm -hmm. uh, 
the national security state is habituated to reacting to pressure with pressure. They, there's no room in their calculus to concede to pressure, to confrontation. And that is the theme of the 2017 crisis, right? Every threat we made, every bomber we sent, every deployment, every insult, it was met in kind with insults and threats and defiance and more missile tests and nuke tests. And the crisis was brought on by brinkmanship meets brinkmanship, you know? Um, and so this, this is what I call their strategic culture of pressure for pressure. And the pattern is just inarguable. There's only one case I can think of that's an exception to the pattern. And it's so strong that it would be silly to base your strategy on the premise of pressuring North Korea into capitulating. Which was the exception? Uh, the 1976 crisis, the Panmunjom axe murder incident. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually as well, but uh, thinking that that may not be the only exception. Um, isn't there an argument to be made that when push comes to shove, Pyongyang has always backed down rather than go to full-on uh, uh, full conflict? And I'm thinking of 76, an example, but also in 2010, when South Korea shot back after the shelling of Waipido and, and, and North Korea you know, stopped and didn't fire back anymore. And, and there have been other instances where, yes, the, the, the tension was ratcheted up on both sides and there was pressure for pressure. But ultimately, you know, when it came down to the wire, uh, North Korea blinked. Yeah, that's not true at all. Uh, it's sort of tactically true in 76, like that's a conversation to be had. But like 2010, like I lived through this in the Pentagon. I was working Korea policy at the time. To, to us, it was a Cuban Missile Crisis of its own, you know, um, and pales compared to 2017, but we didn't know that at the time. So in 2010, North Korea caused those incidents. like. South Korea fired back whenever mm -hmm. YPDO was attacked, but it was just firing back. Like they did no great damage to North Korea and North Korea were the ones who attacked and caused casualties. And so one of the, like part of the theory that I had in my first book was that, and Hawks took this and ran away with it and interpreted it in ways that I did not intend. But I had argued that when North Korea is the active initiator of conflict, then, um, there's room to respond as long as it's proportional and North Korea won't necessarily, doesn't, it's not gonna lead to war, right? Like self-defense as a reaction is reasonable and North Korea knows that it initiated something, but it's whenever North Korea is being pressured. When South Korean Marines on Waipido mm. fire counter artillery, that doesn't count as pressure. That's just self-defense, right? And so, it's the idea of coercion, that you're trying to make North Korea do something via your threats or via your violence, That's when, or via your sanctions. That's when you get the defiance, right? Um, and so that's, there, maybe it's like a slightly uh, terminological thing, but that's why I don't think, you, like it would be a total misread of history to say that they capitulate to pressure. They do the opposite in almost every case. Hmm. In the last year and a half, of course, we've had uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and we really can't ignore that. My, what I'm wondering is, is, is any kind of real engagement with North Korea possible during this time? I mean, Pyongyang seems to be content to rest and wait, enclosed in on itself until it feels 
that it is fully vaccinated and everyone around it is fully vaccinated. It's not letting people in or out. Do you see any sign that North Korea might open or re-engage at an early date, no matter what President Biden does or offers? Uh, if there was something serious on the table or meaningful on the table that's different from sort of, you know, Obama 2.0, I think North Korea would engage for sure. And I don't think the coronavirus would impede that. Or I think mm. they would find a way. But yeah, like they don't seem to be in any hurry to interact with the Biden administration. No. I don't, you know, I'm definitely not on North Korea's side here, but like I don't blame them. Like seeing the context, I get it, you know. We're just, we're going to be at an impasse uh, until North Korea does something we don't like and it brings on a crisis. And the, the not funny thing, the tragic thing about mm. COVID-19 is that like when you layer that on top of the sort of closed border nature of North Korea right now and the fact that it's, you know, China is their lifeline in the first place, mm. the coronavirus is imposing economic constraints on North Korea that are just well in excess of anything we could ever hope to achieve with sanctions. Yeah. And it ain't, it ain't unloose, it's not loosening up the nukes, you know? And so the, it, it, to me, it's telling like they can endure this much ridiculousness and basically eat grass. And um, it's, they're not moving, they're not budging on nukes, right? And so we have to just take that into account. You know, it doesn't mean like, give them a pass on everything. The whole point of the negotiations is to try and make progress on nuclear freezes and reductions, mm. but we just have to be realistic. Uh, ben, what are you researching and writing these days? So I have a, a book that's, I just finished it and it's ah. with the editor right now um, about America's sort of paradoxical role in what's known as the Asian peace. So since 1979, there has been no war. Mm. in East Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, or the Pacific, right? It's a valuable thing. It's an interesting puzzle. Uh, there's different explanations for why, but nobody has really interrogated America's role both in uh, upholding this Asian peace, but also threatening this Asian peace. Mm. And so it's notable. And North Korea fits in here very um, prominently because the the closest calls that the Asian peace has had to being shattered have, of course, been relative to North Korea, right? It's the Korean Peninsula that's been the sort of greatest sort of threat or risk to the Asian peace. Not between China and Taiwan or China and any of the people that it has a, a territorial dispute with? No, although that's also a series of flashpoints that's on the horizon. The risks have never been so acute as with Korea. Mm. Um, and so there are all of these um, different flashpoints, threats to this thing that we should want to preserve, the Asian peace, right? Um, and the question is, how do we do that? And the only way to re reliably answer that is to like relitigate how American policy has been um, good and evil and sometimes just marginal or indifferent, right? Like it's not all about America. There are lots of conflicts within Southeast Asia, for example, yeah. where it's like America doesn't have a say or a play. And then there are times where it's like 2010, war would have happened in Korea if U.S. policymakers in the Obama administration had not restrained South Korea from retaliating in response to Chunan, right? Mm. Or flying the F-16s in to bomb North Korea in, in retaliation for YPDO. When, when did uh, Vietnam invade Cambodia? Uh, 78. Okay, so w would you mark that as the last um, war in Asia? Uh, the last one was 
in response to that war, actually. Ah. So in 79, China invaded Vietnam. Oh, yeah, the China-Vietnam War, right. And it was very brief. Yeah. But uh, the and then Vietnam occupied Cambodia for a long time after that. Right. But incidentally, there's this is a longer story, but like at the time we were in the process of normalizing relations with China. Mm. The Carter administration was on the back of Nixon goes to China. And so in order, um, Deng Xiaoping had many motivations for the invasion of Vietnam. Um, there were lots of geopolitics at play. He had his domestic, you know, constituencies to deal with. But um, one of those motivations, it's extremely well documented, was that he thought he could show the US that it was being basically a reliable ally against the Soviets. Mm. Because America had just fought a war against Vietnam. Yeah. And so China has the temerity to take on the enemy of America, and that would solidify mm. detente. And right. so perversely, <laughs> detente indirectly led to, you could say, you know, contributed to like China invading Vietnam. I never considered that. Final thoughts, Van, on uh, what you hope to see in the next year on the Korean Peninsula? Man, I'm not optimistic. Um, there is a, a limited window of time, isn't there, as you said, right? I mean, we've got the, uh, the next Korean presidential election coming up in April next year. Yes, that's going to determine a lot. If you mm. get a Moon Jae-in uh, 2.0 into the Blue House, that I, I think there is going to be a big opportunity to, and to undertake a transformation toward arms control, toward mutual restraints, threat mm. reduction, that kind of thing. Um, if the conservatives come in, I think we're going to be back to like an Obama you know, era sort of approach to North Korea. Mm. That you know, some people like that. I just don't think much will happen for good in that scenario. All right. Well, that's something to definitely uh, look forward to or keep an eye on at least. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can find Van Jackson's podcast at undiplomaticpodcast.com. He's got those two books out, as we mentioned before, Rival Reputations, Coercion and Credibility in US-North Korea Relations, and On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War. Uh, book number three coming out. Is there a tentative title? Uh, Pacific Power Paradox. Uh, I love alliteration, PPP, <laughs> so I'm going to put my early order into Amazon to get Pacific Power Paradox. Can people find you on the Twit space, Van? Yeah, I'm at uh, Twitter at WonkVJ. WonkVJ. All right, that's uh, it. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today, uh, Van. We appreciate having you. And uh, good luck with the, uh, the book and also with uh, maintaining those two feet in uh, policy and in academia. Thanks, Jocko. This was great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast today. If you're already a member of NK News, we do encourage you to consider upgrading to an NK Pro subscription where you'll find lots of tools and data that is only available to NK Pro uh, members. And you, if you are interested in that, inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. If you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm -hmm.